0: by Katrina Burke Coaching, helping caring professionals create a life of balance and flow. Katrina has a range of programs available for teachers and school leaders. And for more information, head on over to katrinaburkecoaching.com.au. Katrina Burke Coaching, evolve, transform, thrive. This is the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast. A weekly show to help you prioritize your health, happiness and well-being so that you can thrive in the classroom and in life. I'm your host, Ellen Ronalds Keane. Enjoy the podcast. Today's guest is Alison Davies, a neurological music therapist, and it is a cracking conversation. Uh, We talk about brain care as a form of self-care and how to make sure that you're looking after your brain so that you can get it functioning optimally. Um, We also talk about anxiety and some of the uh, root causes for anxiety rather than uh, just looking at the symptoms, we really talk about getting back to the cause and source of the problem. And Alison shares some wonderful, small, simple strategies that if you do them consistently, they really work neurologically. So it's a fantastic, fantastic interview full of great information and... Um, We also recorded this a couple of months ago now, so back in September. Uh, So when Alison does talk about her autism anniversary, uh, it's probably been a bit more than a year now. Um, So enjoy the show. Hello, Alison. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. (laughs) Um, Let's get straight in. Can you tell us about yourself? Yes. Um,
1: Okay. So yeah, I'm Alison Davies and I'm a neurologic music therapist. Um, What that means is that I specialize in understanding the brain and how the brain responds to music. So how the brain responds to melody and how it responds to rhythm. And then I use that information to um, teach people about how they can Manage anxiety and overload, and behavioural issues, and all that kind of stuff. So it's a pretty, pretty, very, extremely interesting area to be in.
0: As a music teacher, I just think that sounds like the coolest thing in the world. But I also think that even for the teachers in the audience who are not uh, musically inclined, uh, I think it's really a fascinating field. Um, And I know a little bit about your background um, and your journey and. And usually on the podcast, you know, I'm usually interviewing teachers or former teachers about their journey and, you know, their their well-being challenges and how they've overcome them. And I know even though you're not a teacher, you've definitely had some ups and downs in your journey. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, my journey has been, oh my goodness, (laughs) it's been a big one. So I um, made the discovery a year ago, actually exactly a year ago. It's basically my one-year autism anniversary.
0: Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Um,
1: In fact, I have been autistic for 37 years, but a year ago I, um, I realized I woke up in the middle of the night, uh, sat bolt upright uh, it was just it hit me in this light bulb moment that happened while I was asleep and I woke up and I realized I was autistic and I mean I know a lot about autism because of all my years of work and everything so in a way it's kind of strange that I didn't realize earlier but there's there's been so much about my own journey about the way I think the way I function the things that I find difficult and the things that I just that secretly go inside on inside my head that either I just thought everyone did or I tried to hide because it was kind of strange <laughs> and all of those things, all of a sudden they all made sense. Um, and so without this, so I've had a, a, an entire life basically with all these silent struggles going on inside me and over the last five or so years they'd become, some of them had become very, very difficult, almost I would describe them as disabling. Um, so I guess having this having this discovery and a subsequent diagnosis of autism, it really was a, a it really helped me put into perspective um, my own lived experience, the stuff I've learned in the past, and really understand how easy it is for us to become off track when our brain isn't functioning at its best. And that's what led me to put all my information together and start educating. And I talk a lot to teachers about this because. Um, we all have brains, we all experience stages when our brains aren't functioning at their best Um, and we all feel overwhelmed and we all experience slow processing time. So it doesn't matter whether you're autistic or not, we all experience this stuff.
0: Yeah, we all experience ups and downs and overwhelm. Yeah, that's so true. Um, And I think we're so good, you know, teachers are so good, I think, at being really compassionate and understanding of the different Um, needs and experiences of the students in their class but they're not always we're not always that way we're not always compassionate and empathetic and understanding of ourselves
1: absolutely absolutely because the thing is any neurodivergent condition like autism or adhd um, it's not a pathological thing it's not a it's sickness or nothing that needs to be changed all that needs to happen when anything's going on with your brain that Um, sort of prevents it from working at its best is general brain care. And that's the same for your students. And it's the same for the teachers. And it's the same for all of us.
0: All right. Let's talk about brain care, because I I just think this is, it's such, it's some of it's really common sense, but some of it's not stuff that we really think about or talk about at all. And at at its core, you know, brain care is like the absolute heart of self-care.
1: Yeah, it is. And you know what? The only time we ever hear discussions about brain care is when we're talking about how not to get dementia. So we are having the conversation about people who are 70 or 80, and we're not, we sometimes talk about child like babies' brain development, but the conversation never really happens. And my concept of brain care is very, very simple, but it is so important. It really just means that we support our brain by giving it things that it likes and when i say things that it likes i mean things that help it work at its best and i'm not trying to change the brain or make it better i'm just trying to help the brain work at its best so i sort of think of brain care as like taking your vitamins okay so you take them every day you don't notice it, you don't notice when you take your vitamins that you're different <laughs> or things are happening easier but you will notice after a while if you're not getting sick as often you're not getting as run down as often and over time you will notice that oh that management plan for me that those vitamins the daily multivitamin has actually helped me in the long term and I think of brain care as that when we do things that our brain loves they're just little things here and there as part of our lifestyle they don't we don't sort of have an, an enormous uh, response in the moment to an enormously happy brain, <laughs> but it's something that uh, that over time really helps us.
0: I love that metaphor, you know, taking your vitamins daily, it adds up over time, you don't notice the next day. I, um, I often like to use the metaphor of brushing your teeth, which we kind of just do out of habit we, and for most of us it's a habit that we learned as really young children and we just don't even think about it, it's just part of life. We don't even think of it as self care because it's just such a habit. And you know, if you miss one day, if you fall asleep on the couch in front of TV and forget to brush your teeth before you go to bed, um, once you know, once in a blue moon, it's not the end of the world. If you do that every single night, you're going to see an impact on your teeth. Uh, and but yeah, we just most of us don't think about it because it's just such a daily, everyday habit. And it's it's only doing it in small little moments of time every day, you know, twice a day every day that adds up over time to actually keep your teeth healthy. Uh, It's not something that if you just brush your teeth really, really hard tomorrow, you're going to never have a cavity again. Mm. Yeah. So talk us through some of the things that might happen to teachers' brains um, and the things that we need to look out for to know when our brain isn't functioning at its best.
1: Um, Well, I guess the first and most common thing is anxiety. Now, anxiety is really – it's not an issue, okay? It's not a problem. It's not really something you have to focus on. It's an indicator. So if you're experiencing anxiety, it's an indicator that your brain is not coping so well right at the moment. Um, And so it gives you a lot of clues. It's actually good to experience anxiety. It's, It's something that we need so that we can then adjust and make adjustments to our life. What we don't want is anxiety that that goes on every single day and lasts for months and ends up in a breakdown or a meltdown, which is quite a common um, story. Um, So anxiety really is just a physiological feeling. You feel it in your body. Your heart rate goes up. Your breathing goes up. You can't think straight. You can't rationalise. You're more jumpy and on edge and, um, you know, all of those things that we experience. I mean, I, I think it's safe to say that everybody's experienced that feeling. Um, and then a lot of the things that come from that—the exhaustion, the moodiness, the not thinking straight, the not being able to finish any task, the not, be able to f- the not being able to focus or have attention, the emotional dysregulation—you know, losing your shit a little bit when you get home from work—all of those things are are not a problem in itself. They are a byproduct of you experiencing anxiety. So what I what I always try and 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 get the message across to people is that your brain is in charge of all your behaviours, so you don't need to try and work on the behaviors. You don't need to work on your focus or attention. You don't need to work on your emotional regulation. You don't need to work on the way you talk to your husband. Um, well, I mean, you can work on those things, but <laughs> if they are a byproduct of your brain not coping at the moment, the the most effective way of sorting out this stuff and making life easier for you is by just supporting your brain and helping your brain to cope. Treat the cause, not the symptoms, right? Yeah, exactly.
0: Totally. Um, And that's so valuable because a lot of teachers experience anxiety and whether they've gone and had it medically diagnosed or not, um, you know, whether they're getting treatment of some kind or not, it, it really impacts their life. And so having an understanding of how to do that kind of brain, that simple self-care, the brain care, that can help treat that anxiety at the root cause rather than just the symptoms is really valuable. And, you know, there's obviously going to be times in teaching that are more stressful than others. For example, report card season is often anxiety-filled. Um, and We can't change that that comes around every term, but we can learn to plan for it and look after our brain in advance so that our experience of that time of term is better. Exactly. And
1: the the report writing is a really great example because if you, you know, in your first few years of teaching you have a stressful experience with trying to get report cards done, the next time you do it, you're a little bit already predetermined to have that stressful response because it's going to trigger memories and the feelings from last time you did it. And then it's a bit more likely to happen the next time and a bit more likely to happen the next time. And then that neural pathway that tells you that report writings are going to make you anxious becomes very dominant and strong. And then even thinking about reports triggers that neural pathway. So the more you experience anxiety in relation to a thing like a trigger, like report writing, the the stronger that becomes. And really – it's about being able to tell yourself or, or break the association with anxiety um, because the, the, the report cards isn't the problem. It's your brain's response to it that is the problem. And we really can control our brain when we know how and when we commit to it.
0: Okay, I've just had a bit of an aha moment um, and I realised that actually, you know, you said we've got to break the association With the stressful thing so there's an association in our mind with something that's stressful and then the more that neural pathway you know fires um, the more those thoughts happen the more ingrained that that trigger becomes and I just realized that actually before I'd even as a first-year teacher before I'd ever even written any reports myself I was looking forward to report cards as a stressful event because everybody around me told me that they're stressful, or because there was a culture of this, you know, this idea that oh my god, report cards—that's going to be so stressful. Yeah, and like this is what I teach people, you know, these days about stress management. It's about you know being aware of those thoughts and and the triggers and the neural pathways. But like I had never I had never drawn that parallel before. I never realized before that actually that trigger was set up before I'd even experienced the thing because of what other people were telling me was going to happen. Exactly. Like, and what you just said about the neural pathways anyway, about that that pathway in our brain, that the more we think those thoughts and the more we tell ourselves that's going to be scary or stressful or whatever, that the stronger that association becomes, that really resonates with me. It's really important to understand. Yep. Um, I like to think of it and explain it um, like cows in a paddock. You know how... Um, If there's like a big paddock of grass and most of the grass is really long and the cows always kind of go the same path, they go from one side of the paddock to the other via this path that's been worn into the ground and because it's the path of least resistance. It's the way – and they all follow each other and everybody else has done it that way and, you know, over time they've worn this path into the ground. Now, it's not to say that they couldn't go from one corner of the paddock to the other straight through the middle, through the long grass, but that's that's going to be harder work because the – um, the grass is long, but if they practiced, you know, if if they trained the grass and kind of wore it away and made their own new little track, it would um, it would eventually become a well-worn path as well. But the you know the first few times it's really hard work. Um, and The first many times is really hard work, and then even when the, if they stopped using that other path, that other track, it still would have a little bit. Of you know, it would still be an easier path. The grass will never quite fully grow back over that um, that place in the paddock.
1: Yeah, and so you can imagine why so many teachers. I mean, I'm I'm talking to someone who completely understands this. Um, you know, they they get to however many years into their career, and it's and they start to think they're having a midlife crisis. But really, it's just this unsustainable. Um, um, expectations that that teachers are put under no wonder their brains are not coping it's it's not them it's their brains and it's unfair there's too many
0: expectations there are there are a lot of expectations so tell us about uh the brain care um strategies and steps that we can take to look after our brain
1: all right so um you're going to think this is what everyone says when i start talking about the brain care strategies everyone's like seriously like my problems are big. That strategy is so small and simple that can't possibly be enough to fix this problem for me. But let me tell you, the brain really is a simple being. It, it responds to the simple things and these simple strategies literally neurologically do work. Okay. So first up, breathing. Breathing has so many different health benefits and the, the way your brain responds to the act of breathing is quite profound. So when you, when you first notice that you're feeling anxiety, you'll notice that your breathing is really short and quick and it's just happening up in your shoulders and chest. And when you notice that, you, um, you notice that feeling and you're like, ooh, I am, I'm feeling anxious right now. These report cards are really freaking me out. Um, what you can do literally is just take longer breaths and more controlled breaths. If you breathe out for longer um it triggers this response. So there's this, there's a vagus nerve, this really long nerve that goes through the entire trunk of your body and goes to your prefrontal cortex. Uh, The act of deep breathing and, and expanding your belly and really breathing in and then slowly breathing out activates that center. And that vagus nerve, it releases a sense of safety. So it is absolutely your first point of call when you're starting to feel stressed or anxious about
0: something. So make the exhale longer than the inhale, slow and long. As
1: long as, yeah, if you can just breathe out a tiny bit longer. And so one really good way of doing this is singing Um, because when you sing, when when you sing anything, you're singing a, um, a phrase. So We generally, when we're singing, we sing a sentence or a phrase before we have a breath and sing the next thing. So you can sing anything you like. It can be in the shower or the car or, you know, anywhere, Um, and it can be anything. The point of it is that by singing, you are having a very controlled out breath or exhalation, and that always calms you down. So you can do this strategy when you're starting to feel worked up, but like everything I talk about the best thing is to do that every day as part of like that's your vitamin. That's one of your vitamins. So that's what you do every day.
0: I love that. Singing as vitamins.
1: Exactly. Uh, you don't have to sing, even reading out loud. And, and teachers will be reading out loud a lot to kids, I imagine, especially the ones with little kids in their classrooms. Um, but reading out loud, if you try and put a couple of extra words into your sentences before you stop for breath, you're doing controlled breathing techniques. So, I mean, you can, be, you can be doing this at multiple points throughout the day every day and you don't have to go to a breathing class to work out how to breathe properly. It's really just as simple as extending the outbreath and filling up your belly so deep breathing so that your belly expands. The other thing about that is that oxygen, so when you breathe in, the oxygen diffuses into your blood. So that's what oxygenates your blood and oxygenated blood circling around your brain helps your neurotransmission. So, when all the little neurons are talking to each other, telling you what you need to be doing, so how you need to think, feel, respond, react, behave, all of that, that comes from neurons sort of messaging each other. I sort of picture them with little phones out, text messaging each other, telling them what they have to do. But without oxygenated blood, those messages don't happen very easily and that they're a lot slower. So, um, breathing really does help you think and process within your brain a lot better. So breathing is hands down one of the best things you can do. Um, I I put a lot of emphasis on internal dialogue, so the stuff that you are saying to yourself in your head because that talking to yourself in your head has the most power over your neural pathways, like the cow that treads the well-worn path. If you're constantly telling yourself, I can't do reports, I don't want reports, I can't do this, too hard, too much, um you're you're making that well-trodden path even it's like you're putting cement down on that path and i sometimes i often reflect on the way we talk to our children the way we talk to our children is how we should be talking to ourselves so when a child has a meltdown or a tantrum or maybe not a tantrum because we we talk we Anyway, if a child has a meltdown, after it's all finished, we hug them, we tell them that we're there for them, it's okay, um, they're safe. Um, but after we have a meltdown, we feel guilty, we tell ourselves we need to be better or be more, that we're not good enough, uh, we're not going to survive this school year. Um, and we tell ourselves terrible things and they become that, that's our internal dialogue and they, those things become things because we're thinking them.
0: Mm, it's a really big one. Those things become things because we're thinking them. Um, and, you know, I think it speaks a lot to how we as a society, you know, uh, the way we deal or don't deal very well with emotions and, um, you know, I think that's a it's been a big learning for me is about emotions being signals to me, not they're not good or bad they just are um and you know there are some places that are safe to express those emotions in some places that it's not safe to express those emotions or it's not appropriate um you know and Brene Brown um Brene Brown the shame researcher she talks about um vulnerability hangovers when uh, you know like after you have had an experience where you've had a meltdown um then yeah that you know afterwards and i've certainly experienced this because i have a lot of feelings and uh there are times where they just overwhelm me um and afterwards for a long time i used to tell myself that yeah it, it was it was me i should have done better blah 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 this horrible story in my head uh and yeah as you say it's it's the things that we're telling ourselves in our head that's actually making that worse and we need to be kind to ourselves. Exactly. and that makes the world
1: of difference. Um, the way you talk to yourself in your head really does have a huge impact on your belief systems and what then what you're able to do and what you can't do. So yeah, I, I, I sort of I like to remind people, what would you say to a child? What would you say out, out loud to a child? Well, say that to yourself inside your head. Um, and start really, you can be, it's hard sometimes to say love, loving things about ourselves out loud, but inside your head, you know, no one's ever going to know. <laughs> so you can be as loving and supporting to yourself inside your head as you want to be. Um, to give you a personal insight into that, at the risk of a vulnerability hangover myself, um, I, I have meltdowns and um, it's I tend I tell myself now after a meltdown, I'm so proud of you. Ali, <laughs> good on you for getting that out. And now you're on track. Um, you're on track to to start again now, afresh, um, and to get back into management and to um, to have. All, because when you have a meltdown, it, it all the anxiety and all the pent up stuff inside your body that had been building up over time comes out. So immediately following a meltdown, you're in a very, very, very good position. Um, The way, In general, the way we talk about meltdowns is, in my opinion, um, not healthy. And I I think all the talk about um, trying to stop meltdowns and avoid them is not the way to go about stopping or avoiding them because it just perpetuates the negativity involved in them and then we hate them even more and we fear them and it's not good for our
0: brain. Well, and it becomes a vicious cycle because we tell ourselves all these negative messages after we have a meltdown, which then makes us feel more anxious and upset which then makes another meltdown more likely
1: exactly yep that's exactly how it works
0: well let's talk about more tips for teachers to help with yeah well-being self-care brain care okay so mindfulness has to be the next
1: one um now again this doesn't this doesn't mean you have to go out and and do a mindfulness course and learn how to meditate and and you know this doesn't have to be a serious or a difficult thing because if you balk at commitment, you're not never going to do this. This has to be accessible to everyone. So to me, mindfulness is about just having moments throughout the day, it just literally a moment where you're completely present in the one thing um, because what happens when you're – because mindfulness it really is just being completely present in something and not trying to do a million things at once or thinking about a variety of things at once. So, if you can just have one moment of just being involved, completely engaged in whatever it is you're doing, you're giving your brain a bit of a break, like a, literally a brain break because it, it really, apart from functioning in terms of keeping you alive, all it's doing is focusing on this one tiny thing. Um, and it means that your brain isn't working on overdrive most of the time uh, where we're focusing on multiple things at once and it means our brain has to work really hard and look multitasking. Yeah, exactly. And the brain likes the brain always prefers the simple life. It, it works much better when it only has, you know, a couple of things to do here and there. It likes to switch off. It really likes that. So if you can just give it a break by being present in what you're doing multiple times throughout the day, you're strengthening that pathway um, that allows it to be present um, and you find it easier over time to, for that to become part of your lifestyle and your brain really, really loves that.
0: Well, that's amazing because teachers are pretty much always multitasking, like especially in the classroom, um, you know, when there are just multiple things happening and you've got to keep your eye on every single student and think about what your, um, what your curriculum is and all the other things that you've got to think about. Um, but, yeah, given the classroom is such got such high demand for, for the brain doing multiple things at once. Give yourself lots of little brain breaks throughout the day so that it can function more optimally in those moments.
1: And the thing is, especially for teachers, because you guys have such unfair expectations thrown on you, it's very, very difficult to be present. And a lot of the time when we are present, we feel like we're being ineffective or not working hard enough or not being efficient enough. So if you find yourself um, – you know, doing one thing and engaging in that, but you're not also trying to solve all the other problems around you, you start to feel like, you know, you could be working harder, you could be working better. But in fact, what you're doing by experiencing moments of mindfulness is helping yourself be able to be more efficient.
0: Yeah, because there's such a cult of busy in our society, you know, this kind of the humble brag of I'm so busy and, and, Especially, you know, that is so true in education and there is a lot to do, but some of it is busy work um, for the sake of it. And so, yeah, this is permission to not buy into that lie that rest is inefficiency. You know, self-care is selfish. And and if you stop for a moment, if you take some time out, that's a waste of time. It's not.
1: Yep, you're off the hook.
0: And it's hard, you know a lot of us are really attached to our identity as busy. Um, a lot of teachers, dare I say it, are martyrs uh, in a lot of ways, and but we can change it. It's hard. It's like the cows in the paddock forging that new path, but we can change it.
1: Yeah, you're right. And if you can you think about how difficult it is for children or teenagers, then you think imagine how hard it is for teachers who are adults, so their neural pathways are stronger. So their multitasking and not being present is a lot more dominant for them. So, you know, the older we get with these habits in our brain, uh, um, the the harder we have to work at really trying to make the new pathways.
0: Yeah. So if you're struggling with breaking that habit, be kind to yourself. Remind yourself that it is hard work for the brain, you know, to create these new habits and, and be kind to yourself with the things that you're telling yourself inside your own head.
1: Exactly. Yeah,
0: that's right. Well, this has been absolutely phenomenal, Alison. Um, thank you so much for all your amazing wisdom and insights and self-care strategies. Um, I think it is so valuable and this is just just the start of this conversation, I'm sure. Um, people, if they want to follow you, which I'm sure they will, where can they find you? Uh, absolutely. So you can find me at
1: alisondavies.com.au and, um, and I guess you'll write down my name somewhere so people know how to spell it. <laughs> no one spells my name right because I'm an Alison with two L's. Um, so AllisonDavies.com.au you can find me. I'm on Facebook and I've got a website and I'm on Instagram, on YouTube. You'll find me in a few different places. But, um, but yeah, like there's lots of videos that I've made talking about lots of little strategies and techniques um, and you can just go find them and hunt through them
0: great i'll put the, i'll put everything in the show notes um wow so take a brain break people go and take some deep breaths make your exhale longer than your inhale and uh look after your brain thanks allison bye thanks for listening to the teacher Wellbeing podcast If you've enjoyed it, go ahead and subscribe in your chosen podcast player so you don't miss an episode. I'd love it also if you would leave a rating and review in iTunes and share it with your friends. This really helps the podcast reach more people and together we can spread the message of teacher well-being to create thriving school communities. Show notes for this episode can be found at selfcareforteachers.com.au forward slash podcast. You can also find me at facebook.com forward slash selfcareforteachers and on Instagram my handle is at selfcareforteachers. So come along and follow me there.